Well, good morning. My name's Kevin. I uh, have the pr- great privilege of being one of the pastors here at Cornerstone Church and um, have the, uh, the incredible privilege of many weeks uh, coming to the scripture and uh, teaching and sharing good news of the Lord Jesus uh, with us to dig into God's word and say, this is what God would have to say to us today. And that's our um, that's my privilege again uh, this week, uh, right now, to take God's word, the scriptures, and to seek to apply it to our current day and to our cultural moment. Um, so the context for us, especially if you're visiting with us, is this fall we have been, as a church, as a family, we have been engaged in the Open Doors campaign where we have been seeking and praying and discerning together how the Lord would lead us as a, as a church family to... Um, to make Jesus known in greater ways here in Niagara and, uh, and through Niagara to the nations. And, and so uh, part of the Open Doors campaign has been a financial fundraising giving initiative. And uh, last Sunday, we, um, we asked that, uh, we called it Commitment Sunday, asked that uh, we would gather together our gifts and our pledges over the next three years. And, uh, and this Sunday, we have the, just the great privilege of being able to share how God's moved among us. We've, we've sought in every way. We've tried and aimed for this to be a spirit-led initiative. We haven't you know, taken anyone out for coffee and said, hey, I really need you to come through with this amount. And um, we've just said, would you seek the Lord on this? Would you, uh, if you're married, talk to your spouse and pray and, and seek God's leading and uh, consider sacrificing. Consider sacrificing deeply over the next three years, to see this vision come to fruition. And so we just have the great privilege of uh, sharing, and, uh, and I'm not going to do it yet. So, <laughs> See, see, I, I have this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to get your attention for the entirety of the message, because I know you just want one thing out of me. <laughs> so you're going to keep listening, and then eventually, uh, sometime I'll say it. So, in this moment, what would the Lord say to us? What would the Lord say to us in this moment? And uh, just been led really uh, clearly to open up the scripture to First Chronicles 29. And I'll invite you to do that. I, let, I read part of this last week as we gave the offering. But I want to read, read this more and then just share a few thoughts about what the Lord would say to us in this moment of us presenting our offerings, what would he have to say to us? So I'm going to read from First Chronicles 29, beginning at verse 1. And I encourage you to do that. Uh, read along with me if you have a Bible with you, an app form, or the red Bible in the pew. You turn to First Chronicles 29. I'm sorry, I forgot to look up what page that's on. 306. Good. Sword drill. Love it. First Chronicles 29. Then King David said to the whole assembly, My son Solomon, the one whom God has chosen, is young and inexperienced. The task is great because this palatial structure is not for man, but for the Lord God. He's talking about the temple. With all my resources, I have provided for the temple of my God. Gold for the gold work, silver for the silver, bronze for the bronze, iron for the iron, and wood for the wood, as well as onyx for the settings, turquoise, stones of various colors, and all kinds of fine stone and marble. All of these in large quantities. Besides, in my devotion 
to the temple of my God. I now give my personal treasures of gold and silver for the temple of my God. Over and above everything I have provided for this holy temple. 3,000 talents of gold, gold of Ophir, and 7,000 talents of refined silver for the overlaying of the walls of the buildings, for the gold work and the silver work, and for all the work to be done by the craftsmen. So again, David now here is taking not just of the resources brought in through the king, but he's taking from his personal treasury. He's really emptying it out. Um, if, If you want to try to equate it to today's dollars, he's given about $5 billion in today's dollars. It's hard to make that. But now listen to what David says. He says, now who is willing to consecrate himself today to the Lord? Then the leaders of the families, the officers of the tribes of Israel, the commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds, and the officials in charge of the king's work gave willingly. They gave toward the work in the temple of God 5,000 talents and 10,000 derricks of gold, 10,000 talents of silver, 18,000 talents of bronze, and 100,000 talents of iron. And any who had precious stones gave them to the treasury of the temple of the Lord in the custody of Jehiel the Gershonite. The people rejoiced at the willing response of their leaders, for they had given freely and wholeheartedly to the Lord. David the king also rejoiced greatly. David praised the Lord in the presence of the whole assembly, saying, Praise be to you, O Lord, God of our father Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor. For everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, O Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honor come from you. You're the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt Give strength to all. Now, our God, we give you thanks and praise your glorious name. But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you, and we've given you only what comes from your hand. We are aliens and strangers in your sight, as were all our forefathers. Our days on earth are like a shadow without hope. O Lord, our God, as for all this abundance that we've provided for building you a temple for your holy name, it comes from your hand, and all of it belongs to you. I know, my God, that you test the heart and are pleased with integrity. All these things I have given willingly, with honest intent, and now seen with joy how willingly your people who are here have given to you. O Lord, God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, Keep this desire in the hearts of your people forever and keep their hearts loyal to you. And give my son Solomon the wholehearted devotion to keep your commands, requirements, and decrees and to do everything to build the palatial structure for which I have provided. Then David said to the whole assembly, Praise the Lord your God. So they all praised the Lord, the God of their fathers. They bowed low and fell prostrate before the Lord and the king. This is God's word. So we're calling today Celebration Sunday. You may not be in the mood to celebrate. Some of us are going through difficult things. But we will together as a body celebrate the offering that the Lord has led us to make. This text I've read is a, an account of an offering that was to build a building. 
that would house God's presence. It's not the same as the offering we made here. And yet there's a lot of similarities. I want to see, and I want to kind of pull out for us, two reasons to celebrate. Two reasons that David, in this account, the Lord gives us to celebrate today. And the first is uh, the reason to celebrate is what the offering says about the people. What does the offering say about the people? It's going to take me a little bit to expand this, but so stay with me here. Um, so one of the, uh, if you study the life of David, and David is uh, one of the, the, the massive figures in the scripture. He's actually got two, two biographies written of him, and one in First and Second Samuel, one in First and Second Chronicles. Um, and so there's, there's kind of two parallel biographies of King David in the scripture. But one of the great themes of David's life is his passion and his purpose to bring the presence of God into the middle of God's people. That he wants God's people, the Israelites, over whom he's leader, he has this great overarching passion to bring the presence of God among them. That, that he wants God's people to live in God's presence. That he wants God's people to relate to God as, as not only as a kind of a remote boss, but to relate to God as a father and as a friend, as a lover, as a shepherd. And so he, he writes the poetry, right? He writes the Psalms. It, which, which are these just incredibly intimate prayers and, and songs of praise, this poetry that, that draws us in, that allows us freedom to express our emotions in God's presence, to really relate with God, not as, as someone who's so remote and kind of off out there, um, as, as just a boss, as the, as the kind of the angry ruler, but as, as a friend, as a, as a person, to relate to him. And so when David becomes king... The Ark of the Covenant was in exile. Now, the Ark of the Covenant isn't Noah's Ark. That's different. Um, the Ark of the Covenant isn't even quite what you learned about it, about it in Indiana Jones. It's slightly different than that. So the Ark of the Covenant was a box. And it was a significant box in the life of Israel. It was a, it was a smaller box, and in it were some... Uh, some memories, some items that were meant to remind God's people of God's word to them and God's activity among them. And so the, the tablets on which God wrote the Ten Commandments were in there. Aaron's staff was in there, and there were a few other things in, in this box. And, but then over top of the box was what's called the mercy seat. And on the mercy seat were, were two angels facing each other, kind of hovering with, with their wings outstretched. They called cherubim. And this gold-plated mercy seat. And they, they covered the mercy seat. And once a year, the high priest on Yom Kippur would go into the inner part, the most, innermost part of the, of the tabernacle or the temple. And they would sprinkle the blood of the offering. Uh, we call this the Day of Atonement. On the, on the mercy seat. They would, they would sprinkle blood on behalf of the sins of all of the people. As they make confession and God, God's presence was there. It was called, called the Shekinah glory cloud. The Shekinah glory was the, the royal immediate presence of God. This bright light. This, this blindingly brilliant light that was the sign of God's immediate royal presence. His majesty and his glory 
dwelt above the mercy seat. And so this Ark of the Covenant was in exile. Now, why was it in exile? Well, um, this, this Ark, which was really the sign of the presence of God, because God's presence lived above the mercy seat. Well, in the, in the book of Exodus, so Exodus is really the story of Moses and then Joshua bringing God's people from Egypt in slavery to their promised land. And they would, they, under Moses, Moses was commanded by God to build this ark as part of the tabernacle, which is part of God's way of God living right in the middle of his people. And so they built the ark. But in the Exodus, um, when you touched the ark, you died. The ark was, was carried actually around. We know the story of Jericho, right? And the walls come and tumbling down. The, it was the ark that marched around in front of the people and the, and the, the marching band. And, um, and so when they blew the trumpet, but it was God's presence led them around in the, in the ark. They, they came to the Jordan River and they needed to get across. It was the ark. The priests were carrying the ark on these um, rods. And it was when the first priest touched their feet into the water that the Jordan stopped and allowed God's people to pass through. But it was this... So it was this powerful presence this ark you couldn't touch it or else you would die and so the priests had to carry it on this as they were moving on on rods now judges come and and israel is in the promised land and the nation becomes corrupt and one of the priests is eli and so israelites are fighting with their enemies their arch enemies the philistines and 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 the battle's going badly and so someone has the bright idea hey let's get the ark and so they kind of treat it as like this magic eight ball or this relic or this powerful item and say, hey, those, you know, filthy Philistines, if they touch this ark, they're going to die. We have a secret weapon. Gods can be on our side. So let's get this ark and like, let's use it as a weapon. And so they, they use the superstitious power of the ark and they bring it to the battle, which is not what it was meant to be used for. And the battle goes really, really badly. And thousands and tens of thousands of Israelites were slaughtered on that day. And the Philistines actually take the ark back to Philistia, back to their town. And they touch the ark and they don't die. But whatever city they put the ark in is hit with this plague and the city's wiped out. And so it's a series of cities get wiped out. And so, kind of in a humorous thing, they, they take the ark and they put it on a cart and they hook up two cows to it with no driver and they just say, get out of here. And they, and they send, the, send this, uh, the, the cart off in the direction of Israel and it comes back. And it's, so the ark is no longer in Jerusalem. It's no longer in the tabernacle. It's off in exile. It's living in someone's house. And David's great passion was to get this ark back. David's great passion in his life was to bring the presence of God right into the middle of his people. And so maybe you know the story. It's in Second uh, Samuel 6. It's in First Chronicles 16. He, he has this attempt to bring it back, and they're, they're, carrying, they're bringing the ark back on a cart, which they're not supposed to. It's not supposed to be put on a cart. They're supposed to carry it with rods. And uh, one of the oxen stumble, and it's about to fall, and Uzziah reaches, Uzzah reaches out his hand to keep it from falling, and he drops dead. And David's like, whoa, what's going on? I'm trying to bring the ark back, Lord. I'm trying to honor you. And you strike this guy dead. And he 
Eventually, then they, they realize they're supposed to carry it on rods, and so they bring it up, and David is dancing and, and celebrating, and he's, his, one of his wives is like, hey, why are you humiliating yourselves? And he's like, I'll be even more humiliated than this. I'll be more undignified. I'm going to celebrate. And that's where, that's when those words that Matt read at the beginning of our gathering this morning, that's when he, he says, oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call on his name. Make known among the nations what he's done. Sing to him, sing praise to him, tell of his wonderful acts, glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Look to the Lord in his strength. Seek his face always. So David has this great passion at the presence of God into his people. And you may think, well, like what's the deal with the ark? Um, why does sometimes you touch it? And you die, and other times you can do whatever you want with it. The Philistines really aren't able to do that. Sometimes it's has this mystical, mysterious, supernatural, superstitious, almost power. And other times it seems like it doesn't. Well, you can't put God in a box. That's one of the things it's teaching us. You can't put God in a box. He's a person, not a force. His presence is never tied to any object. His presence is never tied to any person or method. The presence of God cannot be conjured up. That if you just say the right words, if you just sing the right songs, if you just do the right things, then his presence will come. He's not a genie in a lamp. He can't be controlled. He's, he's wild. He's not tame. You cannot tame God. You cannot control him. Which says to me, which says to us, that, that the way that God is going to work through Corner, at Cornerstone Community Church 20 years from now is different than the way he's, he's working right now and is different than the way he worked 20 years ago. We can't control him. One of my heroes, one of my mentors in preaching is a man by the name of Dr. David Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a Welsh guy but was preaching most of his life in London. But, um, so he was on the heels of the Welsh revival. And the Welsh revival where like thousands and thousands and thousands of people came to be, know Jesus and became Christians, just changed the fabric of society so much so that the, that the animals wouldn't understand their owners anymore because they only responded to swear words, and now their owners weren't swearing anymore, and so they had to retrain all the animals. And like the whole society was, the fabric of the society was changed by this revival. But one of the ways that God worked was through certain hymns. We still sing some of it. Like, um, what's the one? Um, grace and love like mighty rivers flow incessant from above. That, that song, does that ring in some bells for us? We still sing it. But that was one of the key songs in the Welsh revival. But Martin Lloyd-Jones kept having people who were saved in the Welsh revival come and say, no, 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 we have to preach like this. We have to sing these songs because that's the way God works. 30, 40, 50 years later. And he said, no, 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 God works differently at different times. You can't conjure him up. It's not if we just sing the right song, if we just say the things in the right order. He's not a genie in a lamp. He isn't, it's not a spell that we cast. We have to be creative. We, can, we have freedom to be creative, to innovate, to try new things. The presence of God can't be conjured up. He cannot be controlled. So the people of God failed to believe Failed to, to relate to God as that father, as the, as the friend, as the shepherd, as the lover of their soul. They, they, were, they were relating to God as this remote boss. And David said, no, 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 no. I want you to seek his face. 
I don't want you just to bring the superstitious power of the ark into the presence of God, into the presence of the people, into the middle of the people. I want you to seek his face. I want you to glory in his holy name. I want you to praise him. I want you to know him. I want you to relate to him as a person, not as a force, not as a remote boss, but as a father, as your shepherd, as your, as your loving king. I want you to relate to him as a person, not as a force. So as he brings the ark back, that's what he's saying. He's saying, let's, let's seek his face together. Let's glory in his holy name. Let's rejoice in him. Not in what he does for us, but rejoice in him. Just for who he is. Not for what he does for us. I want you to relate to him. I don't want you to believe in God the way people pay their taxes because they have to. I don't want you to obey God in the same way that we pay our taxes, right? We pay our taxes. The only reason I pay any tax at all is because I have to. That's not the way that we want to relate to God. He says, give your heart to him. Seek his face, not for what he does for you, but why, but for who he is. So this offering in this passage I read, is it about the money? Is it about, wow. Look at how much they gave. That's amazing. Is it about the money? They gave so much. Look at what David says in verse 5. I kind of pointed it out, but I wanted to, he asked, Now who is willing to consecrate himself to the Lord? Who's willing to consecrate themselves to the Lord? What does consecrate mean? It means it's explained really throughout this passage. Verse 19. Give my son Solomon the wholehearted devotion to keep your commands, to do everything to build this temple. Wholehearted devotion. Verse 17. I know, my God, that you test the heart and are pleased with integrity. Integrity is this unity of heart to do one thing. Kierkegaard famously said, purity of heart is to will one thing. Purity of heart is to will one thing. David wrote in Psalm 119, Unite my heart to fear your name. Unite my heart. Bring unity of heart. Give me an undivided heart. Give me one heart. Give me one will. Give me wholehearted devotion. That's what consecrate means. It means to be set apart for one thing. To have one purpose, to have one heart, to have one desire. Again, magic is trying to control God without the commitment of your heart. That's what the Israelites were doing. With, and they're bringing the, the, the ark into the middle of their battle. They're not offering up their lives to God. They just want to use God to gain a victory. They just want to conjure up his presence for their own benefit. They're not after God to get God. They're after the things that God can do for them. They're, they're using God like magic. They're using God to get things. So imagine this, young women. Some young gentleman comes to you and says, I would like your hand in marriage. Would you marry me? And you say, oh, that's amazing. Why do you want to marry you? Why do you want to marry me? And the young man says, well, the connections your family has could be very useful to me. Why do you want to marry me? Well... I think you have a big inheritance coming. 
your trust fund. Very appealing to me. Right? It's over, right? You, you, want, you don't want me for me. You want me for the things that I can provide for you. Some of us treat God that way. Some of us may have even thought of our offering last week like that. Well, God, I dug down pretty deep. You kind of owe me now. When can I expect my raise? Look at how much I gave. When can I expect to win the lottery? Because after all, I gave pretty good. We use God to get the things that we want him to do for us instead of a wholehearted devotion, a unity of our mind. And David is celebrating. So I've gone through this rabbit trail all to get to this point. David is celebrating because he's saying, these people have given freely and wholeheartedly. They've taken their hands off the wheel of their life. They've, tried, they've stopped trying to control God. They've stopped trying to control their own destiny. And they've said, your will be done. You are the Lord. You're my king. You're my father. You're my shepherd. They offered freely and wholeheartedly. It says wholeheartedly. It's a literally, literally it says shalom hearted. Shalom is this just rich Hebrew word that means often means peace, right? We think it means peace, but it means like flourishing, wholeness. It means, it, there's, a, there's an element of delight and, and rightness and goodness. He says it's shalom-hearted, full-hearted, peacefully-hearted, hearts that are flourishing. They gave. No matter what your idol is, money comes in handy. That's why money's such a big issue. No matter what our idols is, and that's what the scriptures would teach, we think, is, is that all of us have this tendency to, to no longer, to, to not worship God as, as with our, all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, but rather we have this tendency to drift, and we take other things, usually really good things, in our lives, and we make those the, the, the one thing. We make those the, the, the object of our highest devotion and our, and our greatest allegiance, and, and that's the object of our worship. Well, no matter what that idol is, money comes in handy. Some of us, um, like for me, one of my idols is approval, that I want people to like me. And so, so that sometimes means a refusal to do hard things because maybe people won't like me if I do those things. And I won't obey God because I want people to approve of me. Well... If approval is your idol, money can come in handy because you can get people to like you if you use your money in the correct way. Some of us, uh, are we have control. We want power. We want control. Money comes in handy. Money's really useful to control things, to get your way. Some of us, are, um, our, our idol is comfort and security. We want to make sure that we're okay. We're, you know, we're safe. We've got enough money to live to 106. Like... Um, we need security no matter what comes so that if I lose my job tomorrow, I've got money for the next 12 years. Like, we need that security. We need comfort or pleasure. Well, all of those things require money. And David says this offering was a sign of wholehearted devotion. He says when we drop our conditions before God and we just say we want you for you, we want your will to be done, 
When we stop trying to control God, his presence is invited. That's what invites the presence of God in our life. That the presence of God, which is what the temple is all about, which is what this offering here is all about, the presence of God is invited into lives that say, I'm no longer trying to control my life. I'm no longer trying to control you, God. Your will be done. I want you for you, not for what you can do for me. That's what invites the presence of God. And that's why David is celebrating, because he sees that wholehearted devotion. Wow, that took longer than I thought. What does this offering tell us about God? Second reason to celebrate is what this offering tells us about God. It's easy to miss what's really important. It's easy just to try to figure out the math and say, all right, what was that offering? Five billion dollars, oh my goodness. It would be easy for us to say, all right, what was the offering? How many millions came in to Cornerstone last week? What, was the, what does it entail? Like, uh, why did it come in? Who gave what? Like All of that, right? We're trying to do the math. We're trying to say, okay, what can we build? What can we do? And easy to miss what's really important, which is the reality of God, that God revealed himself. David says that it's through the offering of God's people that God revealed himself. That the giving of money for the ministry of making God known was the work of God to reveal God so that we could stand in awe of God. And so David says, praise the Lord. Say true and wonderful things about him. That's what praise is. Say those true and wonderful things about him. He says that that offering revealed God to be great. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness. You are expansive and massive. Yours is the power, all power, greater than any atomic weapon, that you move your greatness to accomplish your will. You have incredible power and the glory, which is a word which means beauty and splendor and weightiness and significance, that your greatness and your power are not ugly, they're beautiful, and they're directed for our good. And yours is the splendor or the victory that you have persisting and powerful and prevailing and enduring triumph, God. And yours is the majesty that when you ride through, we salute. You have majesty. We don't take you lightly. We stand in awe with a joyful trembling of who you are in your greatness and in your power and in your glory and in your victory. And yours, everything is ultimately yours. You own all things. You own my house. You own my TV. You own my car. You own my mind. And you own my body. Everything in this world is yours. My very life belongs to you. Yours, O oh Lord, is the kingdom, he says. You have the authority of royalty. You actually rule as king. It says wealth and honor come from you. Now listen, if anyone could say that they earned what they had, it's David. David was born in backwater Bethlehem as the youngest runt of ten older brothers. He's got no inheritance coming. He's got nothing coming. He's being chased down by the king, trying to get killed by the king of the nation. He is hiding out in caves. He is at the bottom. But with his might and his ingenuity and his leadership, he, 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 he rises to power. He kills Goliath. He accomplishes all these things. And the, the, the highest 
peak of Israel is through King David. And David here is saying, it's all because of you. Any wealth I have is yours. Any honor I have is given to me by you. Everything is yours. The kingdom is yours. Wealth and honor come from you. And you're merciful. Who are we, he says, and who, are, who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? He says, it's a mercy of you to allow us to contribute. It's a mercy that you allow us to give. To see your honor made known and your greatness made known and your glory made known. It's a mercy. Now friends, when we see God, when we see him for being great and powerful and victorious and the owner of all things and the giver of every blessing as majestic and the one with all authority. And when we hear this call to wholehearted devotion, this unity of heart to will one thing only, friends, we need a promise. We need a promise because if we look inside, we'll say like, oh, I didn't quite give that way last week. I didn't quite give wholeheartedly. I didn't quite dig down as deep as I could have. Or I kind of want God to really, really bless me because of my gift. I think I'm in his good books a little bit more now. Was Solomon wholehearted in his devotion? You know the life of Solomon? Solomon wholehearted not a trick question. Was Solomon wholehearted? No, Solomon had a thousand wives. That's how dumb Solomon was. <laughs> Solomon worshipped other gods. Did Solomon build the temple? Yeah, he did. Did the presence of God come down and rest in that temple? Yeah, it did. Do you know Why? Because this passage, actually just before this passage, God gives this beautiful promise. He says to David, David is is telling this account, he says, you know, I had it in my heart to build a temple, and God said no. God said, David, you're a man of war, and I need a man of peace to build my temple. Because the temple, the presence of God, is a sign of the world to come. The temple is a sign of my presence, which is, a, which is a really a restoration of the way things are meant to be. And in the kingdom that's coming, in the way things are meant to be, there is no more war. There's peace. There's flourishing. And so I need a man of peace to build this temple. And it says, I'm going to relate to him as a father, and his kingdom will last forever. His kingdom, his throne will last forever. The one who will build my temple... God says, is a, is a king who's a man of peace and whose kingdom will never end, whose throne will last forever. Is that, uh, is that Solomon? Is that just hyperbole? Like, O king, live forever, even though we know you're going to be a goners? No. This was the promise of the coming king, the man of peace, the prince of peace, who one day would stand up in that temple on the temple grounds where there was no more Shekinah glory, where the glory cloud was absent. 
And so to, to make up for it, they had these huge candelabras to try to, to, to light up the presence. And this man stood up and said, I am the light of the world. I am the Shekinah glory. I am the presence of God. As John says, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us, lived among us. This man stood up in the temple and said, tear down this temple, referring to his body, and in three days I'll raise it up again. And he did so, not at the cost of his wealth, but at the cost of his life. This man was wholeheartedly devotion, devoted to God. He's the only one who earned the presence of God. And so the presence of God came through a wholehearted man of peace who brought the presence of God, not at the cost of his wealth, but at the cost of his life. And when you receive this, when you see this, it allows you to release control of your life and of your wealth. So cornerstone three simple applications for us. Generosity. We can give money without giving our heart, but you can't give your heart without giving your money. You can't give your heart without giving your money. You can give your money without giving your heart and think, you know, God owes me. I'm trying to control him here. But really, you cannot give your heart to God without also releasing control of your bank account. Secondly, creativity. Again, revivals. There's only two things that revivals have in common. Every one. Every significant move of God has extraordinary prayer and gospel preaching. Everything else is different. You never get back to Narnia the same way twice. So let's be creative. Let's innovate. Let's try new things. And prayer. The presence of God is available. Let's not settle. Let's not settle in prayer. Let's seek after it. Let's go after it. Those of you who were here last Sunday evening for our prayer gatherings, the presence of God is coming among us. He's meeting with us. Seek him. Seek him alone. Seek him together. The presence of God is available. And so, Father, we say together today, yours is the greatness. Yours is the power. Yours is the glory. Yours is the victory and the splendor and the majesty and everything in heaven and on earth is yours. The kingdom is yours. Wealth and honor come from you and you are merciful towards us. We receive that today. And we pray, Lord, that that vision, vision of you as great but also merciful would give us freedom to release control of our lives. So we would no longer be trying to use you and control you, but that we could have the freedom to seek you for you. Just to know you, not as that remote boss, but as the father, as our shepherd, as our loving king, as the lover of our souls. So work that among us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And you say, hey, you didn't give the number. Oh, did I forget to do that? Um, So there's lots of people who want to know that, and they're over there. And so as soon as we're all back together, we'll share that number. This is our connection time.